The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We get the opportunity to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're going through the book of Hebrews. Well, at least when I preach, we're going through the book of Hebrews. And then when Pastor Cliff preaches, he goes and he takes us through the book of Luke. So I get the privilege of taking us through this wonderful book, challenging book, isn't it? It's a challenging book to wrap our heads around in some places, but it is worth the effort. It will bless you immensely spiritually, and I hope today is a day of blessing for you as we dig into Hebrews. As we are preparing our hearts and just thinking about what's in this text, I want you to think with me, if you will, if you would just imagine with me, you live in a country somewhere in the world and you've lived there all of your life. It's a small little country and all of your time there, you only remember being continually bombarded by a neighboring country's rockets. You, you, ever since you were born, you can remember just constant barrage of rockets into towns and villages and large cities where in this little nation that you live. And because of this constant barrage of destructive rockets that are constantly hitting the cities and the towns and the villages, your little nation has never been able to establish much economic stability because you can't even really come out of your home, much less think about the future and how you would start a business and run a business and run a a nation. And there's very very little economic stability because fear hangs like a dark cloud over this entire nation because you never know when a rocket might land and destroy your home or your business or your friend's home or business. No one knows when these rocket attacks are going to take place. No one knows where they're going to hit. And to make this situation even more sinister, the leader of this enemy nation doesn't really care to occupy your nation, doesn't care to take it over with any of his troops, doesn't care to make it his own. He just gets a wicked delight of making you a slave to fear of when those rockets are going to come in and destroy you and your family and your livelihood. So he keeps dropping these rockets into your nation whenever he feels like it, rubbing his hands together in a bloodthirsty kind of way, just rejoicing in the fear that he can bring upon you and your little nation. And there is anxiety every single day that your home or your business may be destroyed by these random rocket attacks. You're Every citizen of this nation lives in abject fear and is really unable to live a life of productivity and joy. You you continuing to imagine with me, putting yourself in this place? And it doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon because this nation, this enemy nation, actually has a, a reservoir of resources to continue to stockpile these Rockets. They have actually built a mine that is at a, the nexus of a, a host of natural resources that can be used to build these rockets. Titanium, cobalt, nickel, copper, cadmium, iron, platinum, all these various kinds of elements, and then some, a stockpile of endless resources so they can continue to make these rockets to bombard your little nation. They have unhindered access to these resources, so they'll always be able to build and fly these rockets for the next hundred years. You don't know. All you know is it seems like an endless supply. So this, could, this may never end. You're going to live in fear for the rest of your life. Well, you've also recently heard that one of your allies is interested in taking care of this bully nation. 
And so they've contacted your government, and they let them know that in, in one month, exactly one month, they're going to launch Operation Freedom from Fear, and they are going to go take out this mine, this reservoir of resources that has been developed in this country, and they're going to cripple this country's ability to make these weapons, and they're going to bring this country, this nation, to its knees. And so you are counting down the days to this day 30 when they're going to launch this operation. And the 30th day comes, and you, you can't wait. You, you, you're excited, and that morning you wake up with the sound of jets flying over your airspace. And so you run outside, you look up, and there's a huge amount of jets just flying over your airspace towards this enemy nation. And a few minutes later, you hear the faint sound of explosions, and you wonder if the mission has been successful. You hope, you pray, you, you plead that this mission has been successful. You wonder if they are able to hit their target in this nation. About an hour later, you begin to hear some of your neighbors cheering. Apparently, they've heard on the radio that the mission was successful. You've heard on the the radio that the mine, this reservoir, was completely annihilated. The enemy nation has been brought to its knees. It will never be able to manufacture another rocket again. People start slowly to emerge from their homes and the streets begin to fill with people who begin to celebrate the victory. The dark cloud of fear that once hung over this entire nation is now evaporated in a moment. You and the people of your nation can live and work and build businesses and have families and enjoy the fruits of your labor because you have been delivered from fear. You are free from fear. You can finally live. And even when you hear some propaganda from that neighboring enemy nation saying that the rocket launches are going to happen again soon, you just brush it off. You know it ain't true. It's not going to happen You just brush that propaganda off and go about your day. You have been freed from fear, so now you can truly live. In today's passage, we're going to hear about how our Savior has taken up arms against our great enemy to deliver us from our greatest source of fear. So let's turn now and look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Pastor Tim has already read it, so we don't need to read it again. Last week we looked at how Jesus is our perfect Savior because He is man. He is the perfect man. And only a man can substitute for other humans. Only a human can substitute for other humans. The author of Hebrews made that clear. And at the end of our passage from last week, one of the arguments that our author is making is that Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior, shares brotherhood with His people. And he's going to connect now to that point in verse 14. He's going to say, Since therefore the children, the children he has just mentioned, the children with whom Jesus shares brotherhood, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He's now continuing to argue for and display the true humanity of Jesus and the the reason why we need a Savior who is truly human. He likewise partook of the same thing. See, God the Father has given His Son a gift. You see this in in John chapter 6. It's quite beautiful. Jesus says it this way. He says in John 6, 37, 
All that the Father gives me, I will never cast out. And then he goes on to say later in that passage, all that the Father gives me, I will lose not a one of them. This language of giving is gift language. God the Father so loves the Son that he gives him a gift of people. And this people is composed of human beings. And so in order for Jesus to be this perfect Savior for this people, he must become exactly like them in their humanity. And that's exactly what the author says here. He's going to mark out two purposes for why Jesus became a man. It's marked out very clearly in our text. You can see it. The, the, the sermon outline is here for me. It was it's easy to, to get the outline this week. It was, it was not as easy to call all the content because of the challenge of this passage. But it's easy to get the outline. And it's, it's a two-point outline. You can thank me later. But it's a two-point outline. And here it is. The, the two-point outline is this. And it's set off by the word that or so that, depending on what version you're using. Jesus, therefore, because the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things that or so that or in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So that is the first purpose, the first reason why Jesus became a man or the First reason for the incarnation. And when I use that word incarnation, all I mean, that's just referring to Jesus becoming a man. The first reason why Jesus became a man is so that he could destroy the one who has the power of death. But the second reason why he became a man, and this is also set off by that word so that or that, is in verse 17. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So here's the preview. You've got it right in your outline or your, your notes. The Son of God became a man to destroy the one who has the power of death, and the Son of God became a man to become a merciful and faithful high priest. It's a real simple outline, really basic. So let's dig into the first point of the outline. The Son of Man became a man, or the Son of God became a man to destroy the one who has the power over death. See, the people to whom God gave, the people who God gave to His Son, their nature necessitated that He take on their genuine humanity. He had to become fully human. There were heresies in the history of the church that taught that Jesus wasn't fully human; it was just an illusion, and that was rejected, rightly so, by the church. Because in order to substitute for humanity, Jesus had to become a human, full immersion. Not a divine dipping of the toe, as it were, but a full immersion into humanity. Not a, not a French class in college, but becoming a French citizen and spending the rest of your life in France. Right? Not, not, this is full immersion. This is not just brief, momentary, a light dipping of the toe. Something that stuns me to this day when I think about it is the fact that the Son of God will forever be united to humanity. He will always be a man. Have you ever considered that? To blow your mind? Out of humility, he now takes on uh, flesh for all eternity. It's remarkable. His people share in flesh and blood, so, his, so he had to share in flesh and blood. Humans are vulnerable to death, so the son must become vulnerable to death. They are subject to temptation, so he must now become subject to temptation. And why do all that? I mean... Why would you leave the glory and blessedness of eternal fellowship with the Father and the Spirit to enter into a 
world that is rebellious, that is fallen, that what cares nothing for you and your father? Why would you do that? Well, Philippians 2 gives us some information, some knowledge behind the scene here. It, it tells us about Jesus and his humility. Jesus did not see his status and his authority as God as something to be held on to for his own pleasure and his own benefit, like so many rulers are like today, holding on to their status and their power and their authority for their own benefit primarily. The Son of God, Paul tells us in Philippians, didn't hold on to his status as God for that reason. He was willing to then take on humanity and make himself a servant in order to serve our interests, not just his own. Had he only served his interests, we would not have been saved, but he served our interests and therefore rescued us from eternal judgment. You could also say it was not only out of humility, but it was out of love that the Son gives himself to be our Savior. But those reflections are talking about the Son's motivations. What's the purpose of him becoming a man? The first thing that we see in this passage is that he, it's very clear, he would destroy the one who has the power of death. Who's that? Well, he tells us. The devil. And you might be saying, hold on, Derek. Wait a second. Why would the author of Hebrews say that the devil has the power of death? Because the author of Hebrews knows the Old Testament quite well, and I'm quite confident that he knows Deuteronomy 32, 29. And this is what Deuteronomy 32, 29 is saying. Were some of you thinking this already? I don't know. Maybe some of you were. This is what Deuteronomy 32, 29 says. See now that I, even I, I am he, and there's no God beside me. This is Yahweh talking. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there's none that can deliver out of my hand. So God has the power over death. Doesn't the author of Hebrews know this? Why would he give such power to the devil? That seems out of balance. Well, we know. We know that the author of Hebrews, he has immersed himself in the Old Testament. He knows it better than any of us in here today. He is a master of the Old Testament. He is walking through text after text after text. He certainly knows that God ultimately has the power over death. A person dies because God has ordained that they die. He, he, he's not up there wringing his hands going, oh no, another one lost. No, God ordains the death of everyone. What does the author mean when he says that the devil has the power of death? What can that mean? Well, as in any time you're, you're bumped up against a problem, what do you do? Usually you're helped by simply reading on, and that's the case here. Just read on. Verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What is the power that he wields with death? Fear. That's the power. It's the power of, that Satan has. The power that Satan has is his ability to wield the fear of death to keep people in lifelong slavery. The power of death is the power of fear inherent in it. That's the power that Satan has. It's not as though he can control God and, and, and take out people when he feels like it. No, God's ultimately in charge. But the power that he does wield, like a weapon, is the ability to cast fear over every human because they know what death entails. See, death is not 
the fear of death is not merely the fear of the unknown. In some cases, people will verbalize that fear is, is scary because you don't know what's going to happen. But we know biblically that it's far more than just the fear of the unknown. It's actually the fear of judgment. The fear inherent in death is actually the fear of judgment. See, every, ever since Adam sinned in the garden, remember Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? What's the immediate response when they have sinned and they realize they have sinned? Well, they first, they engage in what I would say is false religion. They attempt to cover themselves with their own efforts. They make loin coverings. They cover their shame with their own work, their own effort. That's what mankind is now doing ever since Adam and Eve sinned and tried to cover their shame. We just follow them and try to cover our shame. We're, we're more sophisticated, sophisticated about it now. We'll cover our shame with religion. We'll cover our shame with good deeds and being busy about doing things that we think are important, trying to satisfy God or satisfy our conscience or salve our conscience for all the, the guilt that we know that we bear. We are simply following Adam and Eve because we fear judgment. What did Adam and Eve do immediately after clothing themselves with this loin coverings? Well, they begin to hide, don't they? They hide from the Lord. They hide from God. They know that they've done wrong, and they fear judgment. The cloud of fear has now been cast over all creation because every human being, after Adam and Eve, know that they deserve death, and they deserve judgment. So in us, in humans, humans is a deep, pervasive fear of death. Humans are afraid to die. Death is repulsive, and it should always be repulsive, quite honestly. I remember, I may have even told you this, I, I remember years ago, this would have been nearly 20 years ago, reading an, an, uh, an article in a popular news magazine where the photographer was trying to make death beautiful, and the photographer would take pictures of, of dead bodies and bones and skeletons, and I'm like, that's horrifying. And she's attempting to make it beautiful. Well, that is an exercise in utter futility. You should never be trying to make death beautiful because it is an intruder. It is unnatural. It should always be seen as such. It is, it is wrong. It is a sign that something bad has happened. Death is repulsive. It's horrible. It's frightening. Why? Well, it's unnatural and it's, it's an intruder. Yes, but also and primarily because it speaks to our guilt before God and the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. That's why death is so horrendous and why it's so ugly. It speaks out to all creation that we have sinned and we deserve judgment. Death graphically reminds us that we have sinned against a holy God, a God whose holiness we can't even begin to comprehend. And death is just an indication that we have violated his good and holy nature and standard. So death is horrible, but it's horrible because it is a sign that we have sinned against God. It's an indication that we deserve judgment. 
It's an indication that we stand on the precipice of judgment. And so this cloud, this dark cloud of fear has hung over all of humanity for all of time. No exceptions. Every culture, every people group, every society, every nation, every human has experienced this dark cloud of fear because of what death means and what it entails. And, and you may not be able to articulate all of that. You may not even realize that deep down what you are fear of is, afraid of is the, the judgment to come. But it is nevertheless what you are feeling and, and thinking deep down this Fear of death is something that afflicts everyone. That's what the author is trying to get across to us. So men and women the world over have a natural aversion to death, and they do whatever they can to avoid it. Whatever. Even if it means spending millions and millions of dollars in an attempt to try to remedy the death problem. Keep people living forever. And the devil can wield that fear of death to do a tremendous amount of things that are destructive. He can wield that fear of death to create false religions so that people will salve their guilty conscience with works and rituals and harden themselves against the gospel. He can wield that fear of death to create false religions so people will will salve their conscience with rituals and works and, and harden themselves really against the true gospel. He will wield that fear of death to create blind and unquestioning submission to authorities who are in charge of public health and safety. He will wield that fear of death to, f- to feed the hatred we have towards others who appear to be threatening our life and health. He can wield that fear of death in policymakers who can, will create laws that greatly restrict life and worship and the sharing of the gospel with people. He will wield the fear of death to throw a shadow on all of our earthly joys. One author put it like this. I just, this captured it so succinctly and so well. This shadow is now cast over all of our earthly joys. He says, quote, in every moment of happiness, death is our dark shadow, reminding us that our joy is short-lived. That's reality. You can't escape it, though many of us try. Many of us try to escape the reality of this feeling of fear of death, even if it is setting aside a holiday where you can celebrate death. It's coming up in late October. Don't know if you've ever heard of it. Is that when people set up all kinds of ghoulish creatures and celebrate death in that way, does that mean they don't fear death? No, it's an indication that they fear it all the more. And they're trying to figure out some way to remedy this fear, even if it means an obsession with death trying to remedy this situation through escapism, whether that escapism is through substances or whether that escapism is through other means, oftentimes entertainment. Whatever it takes to get my mind off the reality that death is coming. Well, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ in love and in knowing that his people are at enslaved to this fear of death, he is going to destroy this weapon that Satan wields. Really his, his main weapon, you could say maybe even his only weapon. The Son of God is going to destroy 
the fear of death. And how is he going to do it? Through death. He himself is going to die. Death is the earthly consequence for our sin, right? And it leads to an eternal consequence of judgment. See, you remember when God established Adam in the garden. He set him there to work it and to keep it. And then he said, here's this vast creation. He didn't say first, don't eat. He said, here's this vast creation. Command number one, enjoy the vast creation that I've given you to enjoy. There's a small, tiny little fraction of this creation that you're not to touch, that you're not to eat, rather. That was Eve actually added that part of it wrongly. You're not to eat from this one little tree, just a small fraction of the creation. You're not to eat from that tree. The rest is yours to enjoy. However, if you do eat from that tree, then you will surely die. That was the warning. That was the the true warning. And it is something that was fulfilled the moment that Adam and Eve took from that fruit and ate. They would eventually succumb to physical death, but they began to immediately die spiritually, which is indicated in the way they respond to God the moment after they sinned. They, they engaged in false religion. They created loin coverings. They didn't seek God for uh, protection. They didn't seek God for forgiveness. And then they hid from God. They were dead spiritually, and they would eventually die physically. Paul agrees the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. Death is the consequence for our sin. It is appointed for everyone to die, and then comes judgment. That's later in Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 23. Death is what we deserve because it is what God required as a consequence of our sin against him. Earthly death and then eternal death. How is death defeated then? Through death. Why? Because death is required for sin. And if that payment can be made to God's satisfaction, then death no longer has any power because death is no longer a passage into eternal judgment. I'll say that again. Death is required for sin so that if the payment can be made to God's satisfaction, then death no longer has any power because death is no longer a passage into eternal judgment but entrance into eternal life with a God who's only smiling at you, no longer angry. He's happy with you. He's no longer angry. And he welcomes you into his presence. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what death now does for the believer because the judgment has been paid for. When Jesus died for his people, he annihilated the power that Satan used. He annihilated that power that Satan wielded with death. The devil's most potent weapon has been neutralized, taken out, never to come back for God's people. Death has lost its sting because it's lost its power as a penalty. Death has lost its sting because it's lost its power as a penalty. That's why the psalmist can say, this is, as he is looking into the, the, the future and even prophesying, you could say, of the future that that the saints will have, he can say this amazing statement. Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious. Why? Because Jesus is going to reverse death. and He's going to rise again. And he's going to take the penalty for sin. And so that now 
Death is no longer an entrance into judgment. It's an enter into your Father's everlasting joy. When someone is saved, they come into a saving knowledge of the work of Christ and what he has done on their behalf. And there is a glorious freedom, which is the freedom from death. The freedom of the fear of death. I have a friend in college. I like to tell this story. If you're one of the young professionals, you're probably tired of me telling this story. But that's okay because I don't think I've ever preached it before. So we'll just keep going until someone else tells me that they're tired of the story. I have a, a friend from college. I remember having this conversation as clear as day to me still to this day. Standing in the doorway of my dorm room. That was no bigger than a matchbox, but that's for another time. It was the, the doorway of my dorm room, which was exceedingly small, but nevertheless, I remember having this conversation with, with my friend, and he told me his testimony, and it was a wonderful testimony. And, and he came to uh, salvation a little later in his life. He was in his, his teens, his, uh, I think it was shortly before he even came to college, and he said one of the immediate responses when he got saved, was he just slept. He just slept. He could finally just sleep. The anxiety and the fear that weighed over him, even the anxiety and fear that he didn't even know what it was from or the source of it, it was taken because his biggest source of anxiety and fear was removed, namely the fear of death. And he just slept. I think it's a beautiful picture of someone who's been relieved from that fear of death through the gospel, knowing that Jesus Christ has borne the penalty of death for us so that you no longer have to fear that inevitable end of your life, which is not the end, but only the beginning of eternal joy. Now, I know I, I can just hear the objections. Okay? I can hear the objections. Some of you might be thinking, okay, Derek, are you saying that Christians should play reckless with their lives and not care about their health and, and, and not protect their lives when they are in danger? And I would say, no, that's not at all what I'm saying because that's not what Scripture teaches. Two times in the Proverbs, the Proverbs say this, quote, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. And that said two times verbatim. Again in Proverbs 27, 12. Jesus even told his disciples when things get really bad in one place in terms of persecution, flee again to the next. You don't have to throw yourself into the gunfire, even though you've been delivered from the fear of death. So Christians don't play fast and loose with their life. But let me just lay this question to get you to think along that objection, uh, alongside of that objection. Won't there be a change in the way a person lives when they've come to know for certain that their death is an entrance into an eternity of sinless joy in God's presence forever? Won't there be a change? We're talking about a change fundamentally in what they are anticipating at the end of their life. No longer having to anticipate judgment, but now anticipating the total opposite which is grace being poured out on you for all eternity in God's kindness. That's Ephesians 2. Won't there be some kind of fundamental change in the person who no longer has the fear of death, but has a robust trust in the God who is no longer angry with him? Who no longer is not angry, but who is overjoyed now to have him home? Won't there be a change in that person? I think there will be. 
It's true that we're, as Christians, we're not to be reckless with our lives, and we do take appropriate precautions with health and life. But these precautions are not sought out of slavish fear of death. They are sought out of a desire to glorify God with our lives and steward our lives and steward our health for the sake of the gospel and be willing to, if the time calls for it, even risk our lives for the sake of love and for the sake of the gospel. I think that's the biblical balance. Well, the author now turns from this point to talk again about angels. And angels has been a, a large topic of conversation, as we know, from up to this point. His point is to say that Jesus is superior to the angels. And I hope you've gotten that from the past few weeks, that there's one thing you've gotten is that Jesus is superior to the angels. He is superior to the angels because he's God. He's superior to the angels because he is man. He is superior to the angels because he is the perfect savior. Well, now he takes a little different tack, still on that same thing, but now he's going to say that it's, it's not angels that this savior helps. He doesn't, he doesn't help angels. That's not what he's doing. That's not his mission. That's not what he is all about. Jesus didn't bind himself to angelic beings. He didn't take on a genuine angelic nature, which I don't even know what that would be. So if you got any insight on that, you let me know. But Jesus didn't take upon himself an angelic nature. He didn't set out to save the angels. He's not only superior to them, but he doesn't help them. He rescues human beings from the fear of death. That's who he rescues. But not all human beings. You might remember last week we looked at verse 9, and I didn't get into this because we had so much to cover last week, but it says in verse 9 that he tasted death for everyone. It says that uh, he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering death so that he might, by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. There are some who use that as a text to argue that Jesus died for everyone, and it's just up to you to secure that salvation and to, to believe on Christ. But he's, he's died for everyone. And this is one of the texts that proves that. Now, I, I appreciate the impulse behind that argument. I, I actually appreciate the impulse behind it. Because in a lot of cases, this, this impulse is coming from someone who loves Christ and who loves the sufficiency of Christ's work and who wants to see people saved. And so they, they want to say that Jesus died for everyone. And they look at this text here as proof positive, saying that Jesus died for all humanity without exception. Well, the problem with that conclusion is that the context itself doesn't allow that conclusion. The everyone here is qualified by the context. The everyone are the sons whom the Father is bringing to glory. That's verse 10. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom are all, all things exist in bringing many sons to glory... Who is the everyone? It's the sons he's bringing to glory. Everyone, who, everyone among those whom God is bringing to glory, the Father is bringing to glory, the Son has tasted death for them. He is making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Who, who are the ones for whom Christ died? They're his brothers, he goes on to say. All the children that God has given me. Uh, verse 11, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. For whom has Christ died? Those whom he has delivered from the fear of death. And it says here even, it's not angels whom he helps, but the, he helps the offspring of Abraham. He doesn't help everyone. Not everyone is the offspring of Abraham. Who's the offspring of Abraham? 
Well, uh, Paul in Galatians really helps us in that question. The author of Hebrews says, for surely it's not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And Paul really sheds light on who this offspring of Abraham is, Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, the, the final offspring for Abraham was Jesus Christ. He came through Abraham's line, and he is now that perfect offspring, that final offspring that Abraham was looking for. If you are joined to that offspring, Abraham's offspring, if you are joined to Jesus, you actually have a closer relation to Abraham than ethnic Jews presently do who don't believe in Jesus. Is that wild? It's true. It's what Paul's teaching. Jesus only helps not the genealogical offspring of Abraham, but the spiritual offspring of Abraham, namely everyone who is united to Jesus by faith in him alone. Those are the people that Jesus helps. Those are the people that Jesus rescues. Those are the people for whom Christ has died. Well, he'll add one more line of argument to this point in a moment, but let's move on to the second purpose. Why did the Son of God become a man to become a merciful and faithful high priest? And these are just blessed, wonderful words for the believer, aren't they? Don't you just need to come to the end of a, a, a day where you're just beleaguered with your own sin and the sin of others and your struggles and your trials and to know and to read that Jesus, he's not mean and he's not unkind. He is not incompetent. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Prove it. Well, he proves it by becoming a perfect, genuine human being. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's basically saying the same thing he said in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The same things. Could he say it any other way? Jesus is fully man. He became a man. We can't dilute or undermine the reality that Jesus is truly God, but we also at the same time can't dilute or undermine the truth that Jesus is fully man. The truth about Jesus is followed upon a very sharp ridgeline, and you can fall off on either side. You must uphold his deity, and you must uphold his humanity, full God and fully man. Why a perfect man? So that he would become a merciful and faithful high priest for his people. Let's break down this life-changing verse. What's all this about a high priest? Well, the, the background to this is found in the Old Testament. It's found in the Old Testament sacrificial system. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he gave them an elaborate sacrificial system so that they could deal with their sin problem and have fellowship with him. See, ever since the garden, death is required for sin. But if you're going to have fellowship and save your people, then they need to have a substitute for that death. And so God establishes this sacrificial system so that they can offer animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices, life for life, so that their sins could be forgiven and God could have fellowship with them. And an important part of this sacrificial system was the priesthood, because it would be the priesthood who would act on your behalf. You're a Jew in Israel, and you need to have your sins forgiven. You're going to bring a particular offering that has been stipulated in the law. You're going to bring it to the priest. He's going to slaughter it for you. He's going to use that blood in atonement for you, and he's going to act on your behalf so that your sins can be forgiven and so you can have fellowship with God individually. 
Well, out of these priests would have come the high priest whom God would designate. And the high priest was the only one who can now act on behalf of the entire nation. And once a year, he and only he would have the opportunity to go into the most holy place. The most holy place, if you're thinking about the tabernacle or even the, te- uh, the temple, you would have the outer courtyard, you would walk in to the holy place, but behind the, the veil in that holy place was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God's presence rested. I mean, it was so holy that the high priest had to follow a very careful protocol so that he wouldn't drop dead in the most holy place. Because if you're in God's presence and you're not holy, well, you're done. So Leviticus 16 explains how on the Day of Atonement, this once, one time a year, the high priest would have to go through this elaborate protocol of cleansing and putting on certain clothes. It was very detailed, laborious, so that he could take the blood from a bull and take it into the most holy place on the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and he would, he would sprinkle blood upon the Ark of the Covenant and atone for the sins of Israel in that most holy place. Well, that sacrificial system was merely a picture of the better things to come. And the reason we know that inherently in the system itself is that it was perpetual, it was continual. You couldn't stop sacrificing. Why? Because animal life is not enough to take away human sin. So you had to just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And blood would have been everywhere all the time. It would have just been the the culture that you lived in. The smell of blood... And a slaughter would have been a regular experience in your life, so much so you would have just gotten uh, used to it and probably wouldn't have been able to even tell and been nauseated by it anymore. But this was to remind Israel what sin had done and what it requires to have your sin forgiven. So this, for this reason, the, the, the sacrificial system was always intended to have an expiration date so that it would point to Jesus Christ who would now come in to our existence, take upon a perfect human nature to pay that penalty for human sin as a human. He, as the high priest, would not only offer the sacrifice, he himself would be the sacrifice. So you have sacrifice and high priest in the old covenant system now blended together in one person, Jesus Christ. He will enter in the heavenly holy of holies with his death on the cross and by spilling his blood, sprinkle the mercy seat and atone for his people for all time. That's what he did. He will offer himself as a merciful and faithful high priest. A high priest who looks upon his people and sees their plight and has mercy upon them and gives himself as the high priest. How does he do this? How is he merciful and faithful? The word propitiation tells us how. The word propitiation, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does this word propitiation even mean? It's a big word, but it's a word we need to have in our vocabulary. It refers to a wrath, anger-bearing sacrifice. That's what this word means, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. God is righteously angry at sin. He's, he's right. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't approve of it. He doesn't just wave it off. 
He has to do something about it. That's why I ask people in other religions, how do you get your sins forgiven? And if they give me an answer, oh, we just do some works, or it's just forgiven, then I say, your God ain't just. I probably don't say it like that. That's a little, little sharp. But I'd say, explain to me the justice of your God then, because it seems to me like he just waves sin off. The one true God doesn't wave sin off. He is holy, and he is righteous, and he is righteously angry at rebellion and sin against him. But in grace and in love, he gives his son, who now becomes a substitute for his people, that they would bear their punishment in their place, that he would bear the righteous anger of God in their place and become a propitiation for the sins of the people. The wrath of God was poured out completely upon Jesus. So there's nothing else in this cup for you to drink. It has been drunk dry. If you report, if I were to tip over the cup of God's wrath over your head, nothing would come out because Jesus has borne it all. This is how Jesus destroyed the devil's main weapon. This is how. Death is an enemy because it's a penalty for our sin and it brings us into an eternity of bearing God's wrath on our own. But if God's justice can be satisfied by somebody else, just like it was for Israel through their sacrificial system, but now permanently and perfectly through a human sacrifice, then death is no longer an enemy. Death is no longer an enemy because the penalty has been dealt with. The anger has been dealt with. The holy wrath has been dealt with. It is now a friend that takes you immediately into the presence of your heavenly Father because the penalty has been taken by Jesus. I want to revisit that point that I made previously about Jesus' death being for everyone. I made the argument that the everyone is qualified in this passage to mean everyone for whom Christ has died, all of his people, all those who are within his uh, saving work. Some people may, and the fact do, they point to Jesus' high priesthood to say that, no, 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 Derek, you have it all wrong. Jesus has died for everyone. And they, they, the argument goes like this. The high priest in Israel offered sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. And you have in the nation of Israel both believers and unbelievers, right? You had some who followed Yahweh and some who didn't follow Yahweh. Nevertheless, the high priest still offered sacrifices to atone for all of their sin on the Day of Atonement. And they, both believers and unbelievers alike, benefited from that atonement. In the same way, Jesus Christ, the great high priest, offers himself as a sacrifice for believers and unbelievers alike. In this way, he tastes death for everyone. Now, that may sound compelling initially, but upon further investigation, Jesus' high priesthood actually proves the exact opposite. His sacrifice was only effective for his people, not all the people of the whole world. Remember, the high priest in Israel only made sacrifice for those who were in Israel, namely those who were under the Mosaic Covenant. The high priest in Israel didn't make sacrifice for the people of Egypt. He didn't make sacrifice for the people of Assyria. He didn't make sacrifice for the rest of the nations. God only had covenant with Israel, and the high priest only made sacrifices of atonement for Israel. In the same way, Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, only makes atonement for those who are in the new 
covenant. And only those who are born again by the Spirit through faith in Christ are members of that new covenant. Therefore, when Jesus, the great high priest, makes atonement for the people, he makes atonement for his people, those who are within his covenant. He doesn't make atonement for everyone in the world. And this actually is a great truth to bolster your assurance. This is actually a wonderful truth to bolster your assurance. The truth that Jesus died for his people and not for the whole world. How could this possibly be? Well, it it means that Jesus didn't merely make salvation possible. And he kind of laid it out there for everyone for us to take. And you better not mess it up. Don't mess it up. Get that salvation. Don't screw up. Okay? That's not what Jesus did. He didn't make it possible and then put it on you to not mess it up. God forbid. Because guess what? I'm going to mess it up. That's not what Christ did. Rather, if you are a believer here today, Jesus actually saved you on the cross. Your salvation was completed on the cross. The grounds for your right standing with God was finished on the cross. That is the distinctive of Reformed faith. That it all occurred at the cross. That there is no more doing that must be done to set you right with God. He actually saved you on the cross. Yes, we talk about being saved at that moment in time, and that's a right way to talk. That's how Paul will talk. But there's also a right way to speak of the cross as the place where Jesus saved you because he died for his people, and he made full atonement for them, never to be reversed, never to be changed. Paul says in Romans 5.10 that we are even reconciled with God at the cross. That's how permanent and definitive that death on the cross is. So your salvation is complete. It cannot be overturned. It is finalized and it happened at the cross. Why? Because Jesus didn't merely make salvation possible and then give it to you to throw out there to everyone to then hopefully you'll get it, but rather he saved you on that cross. He accomplished genuine salvation when he died and he accomplished it for his people as a merciful and faithful high priest. Well, he's going to get into more elaborate detail about this priesthood of Jesus in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. So we're just going to continue and wait for that time. This is just a brief word about it here. And he's going to pick up on it later. But the, the, I just wanted to point out the author's point to emphasize the wonderful truth that the incarnation allowed Jesus to experience all that his people experience in this world. Are you tempted? So is he. Do you suffer resistance to temptation? Do you suffer in resistance to temptation? He did too. And because of this, he is the perfect savior for you. He knows by experience all that you endure and suffer in this life. The word help here, in verse 18, it says... For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word help here is actually a different word for the word help in verse 16. The word in verse 16 is a kind of like helping, like grabbing you, like, like kind of a physical kind of thing. The word help here, it has connotations of deep compassion. And I just want to lay these texts alongside of this one here to help you understand what this word help means. This word help is used in Matthew 15, 25, when the woman whose daughter is oppressed by a demon comes to Jesus, and, he, and it says, the text says, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She was in desperate need of compassionate help. And then in Mark 9, 22 through 24, this is the son 
who is possessed by a demon, and the father comes along seeking Jesus to help him. It says, he's saying to Jesus, the dad is, he's saying, and it often casts him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So he needs compassionate help to help his son, but then he also needs compassionate help to help his unbelief. That's the word that's being used here for help. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to compassionately help those who are being tempted. The idea in Hebrews 2.18 is that the incarnation uniquely outfitted Jesus to be our Savior because he experienced the same temptation you and I experience. And he is ready and willing to compassionately help his people in their distress. Compassionately ready to help his people. Did he not already lay his life down for you on the cross? The most important way, of course, that he ministers to you and he compassionately helps you is by removing the guilt of our sin and God's righteous anger. That is the the primary way that he does it. That's the most important way that he does it. But as chapter 4 verse 14 in following will tell us, he actually sympathizes with their people in their suffering and in our temptations and in our trials. That's what verse 18 is, is, is trying to get at. The most important way that Jesus is merciful to us and he helps us is by taking the penalty that we deserve. But then he also sympathizes with us because he knows that we are but dust. He became dust himself. A man, a human. A human being faced with the temptations of this fallen world. See, the author of Hebrews knows that this was a group of people who were facing severe temptation to veer off the narrow way to heaven. They're being told to come back to the old covenant. They're being told to compromise on Jesus. And the author of Hebrews knows that that will be deadly if they go back to the Old Testament. So he needs to encourage them to say, listen, there was someone else who was tempted to come off the narrow path of the cross. He was tempted. He was told by Satan that it would be much easier if you give up all this plan to go and die for your people and just get people to notice you by transforming stone into bread or jumping off a building. All this other stuff, it's a, it's a bit much. And Jesus was bombarded with temptation to come off that narrow path of the cross, and therefore he knows that you yourselves are also tempted to come off the narrow path, and yet he overcame that temptation so that he can come to your aid and come to your help and help you overcome that temptation. Temptation to what? Temptation to walk away from Jesus. He is there to help you compassionately because he knows what it's like. He's able to help you when you are tempted to come off that narrow path on your way to heaven. So this text would urge you to turn to him. Turn to him for the first time if you haven't already and do that today. There's no one like Jesus Christ, a merciful and faithful high priest. Show me another religion with someone like Jesus. 
There is no other merciful and faithful high priest. There is no other means of the forgiveness of sins. There is no other one like him who will come alongside his people and help them. There's no one who became like his people to help them. No one like Jesus Christ. So come to him for salvation if you haven't already. And if you are the Lord's today, cry out to him afresh today. Would you just cry out to him confess your sins and your temptations, would you ask him and go to this text and see that he is ready and willing to compassionately help his people. He is the perfect savior. He has destroyed Satan's only weapon and he's done it on your behalf to free you from the fear of death so that you may finally live in a productive and joyful way, bringing him glory. He's died in your place. He's satisfied God's justice. He has suffered and endured temptation, and he has overcome. He is ready to help you today. So let's pray to him. Lord Jesus, it is fitting to pray to you in this moment as our high priest who has taken the penalty that we deserve out of love, and not only that, but you became man to accomplish that, but to also be able to come alongside us and help us when we are tempted to come off that narrow path. Father, this is a great mercy in the way you've designed our salvation. Would you help our unbelief? We ask, Lord, for your compassionate help to help our unbelief that we might believe these truths and be changed, be changed and helped and transformed. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for dying for us. Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes to see. Would you continue to open our eyes to see? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.